You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez, and before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Over here on my right, we've got the one and only Mr. Bobby Osinski. Hey, Mike. Hi, guys. Bobby, it's good to see you. Happy New Year. Same to you, Mike. <laughs> Next to him, we've got the one and only Mr. Soundman, Mr. Sound Designer, Scott Gershon. Hello, Mike. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we- Damn, Mike. <laughs> that was <Okay>. good. <laughs> and across the table, joining us for show number 170, Woo. the one and only Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast, Mr. Rob Arbiter. Hello, Mike. Hello, everyone. That, was, that had a little Nick Peckness to it. Didn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nick. Can't, he can't be with us today, but um, but he said hello, and uh, we're going to miss him. Awesome. I um, can't believe this is number 170. Yep. 170 shows. That's a lot it's of crazy. shows. crazy. We're, we're going up to our 10-year anniversary. It's, it's just amazing. Hey, but today we have a really special guest, and you know what? I'm going to let Bobby Osinski um, introduce him. Bobby. Today we have Michael Beinhorn with us. Wonderful producer of of some note, as a matter of fact, uh, with great credits. Which note did you produce? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little slow tonight. I okay. can't come back at you. Okay, no, we'll work up to that, we'll that was good. That was good. Yeah. We'll work yeah. All right, credits like Herbie Hancock. You won a Grammy for that, right? Um, I came. I came. Oh, spitting distance. <laughs> okay, oh, he got the Grammy. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> that counts. That I counts. missed. I missed. Uh, Soundgarden, one of my favorite records. Corn, uh, Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Manson, Chili Peppers. Keep Old. going, you're doing great, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, hey, this is from memory too. It's pretty good. Anyway, we're happy to have Michael, and also the fact that you have a new book. Yes, can't wait to talk to you about that because it comes from a different direction when you're talking about producing music. Yeah. And creating music. And it's just coming from a different place, so it'll be fun to talk to you about that. I'm looking forward to it. Nice to see you guys. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> well, hey, it's the book is amazing. Uh, I started reading it last night, and we'll talk more about the book in the second half. But, yes, thank you for joining us. And feel free to chime in on anything you want to. And don't try to keep up with Rob, because he's way too quick for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that. That is untrue. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, a few things that we, we got to talk about to start the uh, podcast. And, you know, I was thinking about our last podcast. Our last couple podcasts have been kind of kind of mellow and, and slightly down. Morbid is the word yeah. you're looking for. <laughs> well, I mean, the last one we talked about, you know, what were our worst moments ever. And that, was, yeah. that was pretty bad. Um, but I, I, and I was, I can't not talk about these two people that we're going to talk about and, and both of them have passed and, and I'm not trying to keep it on a, on a bummer note but um, but the first person I want to talk about is, is Natalie Cole. I woke up New Year's Day to find out that she had passed away um, the night before and that that to me was just, it was shocking. It was truly shocking and the reason why it was shocking for me is Natalie Cole was the first artist that I ever worked with and she was, um, this was back in the 90s and it was back before um, Unforgettable, the duet that she did with her father, and and really got my career started. And I'll never forget when I 
I had been <clears throat> wanting to get into touring, and um, a friend of mine, his name is Brent Jeffers, he was touring, and he had been the uh, keyboard player, side stage keyboard player for Striper, and he was now touring with Natalie Cole, and he was always, you know, I'm going to get you out there, I'm going to get you out there, you know, your time will come. And then he called me up and he said, hey, um, I need someone to fill in for me for some gigs. Are you interested? And I said, sure. And I literally, I don't recommend this, but I was in school at the time and I left before the end of the semester. I mean, I just, I left. It's just, bye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't even finish my classes. I was like, I had the opportunity, boom, I, I, I took it. And, um, and I remember I was so green at the whole touring thing that I was trying to figure out because this is just the first weekend, then we were going to come back for two days, and then we are going to go again for a longer period of time. And I was trying to figure out if I had enough money to pay for my meals um, for that weekend. <laughs> so I was thinking, okay, if I pull out $40, I think I have 40 bucks, and if I eat really, okay, I'll just have like one meal a day. And I was totally green, and I was wondering, okay, do I buy my ticket? How does that, do they reimburse me? How does that, how does that work? And let me tell you, I was really surprised when not only did they pay for my ticket, but when I got there, they had an envelope and it had cash in it for per diem. I'm like, I like this per diem thing. <laughs> um, but I remember going and going to the first um, uh, load in and loading everything in. And I'll be honest, I didn't really know who Natalie Cole was at that time because she she hadn't been, you know, the mega star that she turned into. She was this is right before the Unforgettable stuff. And so I remember we set up, we're doing sound check, um, and then she comes in and she was just, I got introduced to her and she was so gracious and so nice. And then the band started sound check and they were so good. They were so tight and the rhythm section and it was just unbelievable. She started singing and it was just, it was, it was that was kind of the drug that got me addicted to working in music, especially live music and touring. And and she was just she was so just generous to be out there and, and treated everybody really fair and, and my friend Brent stayed on with her for another ten years and only had, you know, positive things to say and, and I filled in for gigs every now and then and it was you know it was just shocking when I found out she had passed away because literally for me, my career all started at, at the Mountain Winery on the very first gigs that we did. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't, you know, if she wasn't so sweet and if it wasn't such a great environment, I don't know what my life would be like right now. So it was really... You'd still be in school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was in film school, so that I'll tell you right there. <laughs> yeah, still be in school. Sure. Uh, but it just—I—I I, I don't know. It was just—it was truly shocking. She was just a great, great talent. Have you, you know, during live shows, it happened with Stevie Wonder, but every once in a while there'll be a moment that just gives you chills—literally chills—and and I remember um, the first time I heard her do the. The little bridge on This Will Be, where she goes into that really staccato part where, where she's just singing the words, you know, 100 miles an hour. She was doing that live, and her range, and the way they were just, she was throwing those notes up, and it was just, ah, oh, it was so phenomenal. It was like, I'd never heard music as good as that, and with the band and everything, and it was just, it, it really, I don't know, it just, I went back there after I found out she passed away. It was a great place to kind of visit in my mind, and it really it meant a lot to me. And, and 
I just, you know, I think the world just lost a really great talent. So I totally recommend you listening to some of her stuff and the Unforgettable album is, is fantastic. On that note, um, then, you know, a couple of days ago, we, we lost uh, David Bowie and that was a big shock. I mean, that was a really big shock. And, yeah. and I know he had a lot of influence, well, on Martin and he, and, you know, your, our friend Ken Scott, who worked with him, has some great stories in the book that you wrote with him um, about David Bowie. I mean, I don't know if anybody wants to talk about David Bowie. And Well, I almost feel like I know him. Did, did you ever meet David? I've never met him, no. I never met him either, but I almost felt like I did because of the interface that I had with Ken, who worked on five albums with him, produced four of his most iconic albums, Ziggy Stardust, Pin Ups, Lad Insane, and I can't, The Man Who Fell to Earth. And I also talked to part of the, the band, Woody Woodmansey, the drummer, and, and Trevor, um, the bass player, Trevor Boulder. So, in a funny sort of way, I almost felt like I was kind of there, like I, I did know him, even though I, you know, was vicarious. But Ken told me a number of stories that blew my mind. The first one was that 99% of all the vocals he ever did were first take. And he can only remember one, one vocal, where they did two takes, and it was on purpose. Because he was singing very quietly during the first half of the song and very loudly in the second. So they set up a signal chain for both sections. That was the only time he can remember doing more than one take on a song. A vocal take. Now, all of those songs that we've heard as well, and I heard this from the band, they were second and third takes. David would never do more than that. And the band would always get upset because just about the time they felt like they were working <laughs> right. the song out, like they had it you know, going, David would be moving on. So that was pretty interesting. The other thing that was interesting, we had, Ken and I had a conversation one day, and I was telling him when I was growing up how important Ziggy Stardust was to me and all the musicians I knew. Everybody had that record, and it was a huge influence on us. And he was saying, I don't understand that. How can that be? It didn't sell that many records in the States, hmm. which I always thought that it did, like it was huge. Right. But he said, nah. no, it nah. never sold that many, and... They were really disappointed because they, they thought that it would sell nothing in the UK and it would sell a lot, you know, in America. And right. it flip-flopped. But, you know, when I would tell him what a huge influence that was, it would just blow his mind. Like, he couldn't believe it. Hmm. So, I mean, there was so many interesting things that I learned about David and, in a way, built up his persona more and, in another way, broke it down. Yeah. Like I, again, I, I don't want to take all the time up here, but there there was another thing, and, and just talking about Ziggy Stardust, for instance, people think of that as a concept album, and in fact, it never was. Hmm. It just happened to fit together, so it told a story, but it was by dumb luck that it happened. As a matter of fact, the whole Ziggy persona which David played up later, he never thought twice about it. And it, it was just later when they started to be successful that he pulled that in and started to, to build on it. Wow. And in fact, the whole <clears throat> Ziggy character was built upon one guy. 
The guy's name was Vince Taylor. Vince Taylor was the equivalent of uh, our Bill Haley, you know, Bill Haley in the comments, yeah. comments the, the, the first rock and roll song. Well, he was the English Bill Haley. And apparently he was a nutcase. He had, and, and really he was. He had a nervous breakdown on stage and it was very public and very, you know, crazy. But that was Ziggy Stardust. That was the persona. Mm-hmm. And Ziggy, the name, came from David riding on a train and wanting to, looking for a name and seeing, as he passed by in the train, Ziggy's tailor shop. <laughs> and that became Ziggy Stardust. Wow. wow! So I mean, you hear all these stories, you know, and it's always the this real story behind the story, right? That's so interesting, and, yeah. and that, that's just a few of them. You know, I, I heard so much about them, and, and again, you hear all these stories, and after a while, you feel like you know the person, even though it's far from the truth. Yeah, that's well, awesome. I mean, he influenced so many people. Yeah, I mean, it it, it almost like he almost gave. Permission for people to be weird after him, yeah. you know, because he he pushed the envelope on so many things, and you know he was even his stuff in the eighties with like Modern Love and you know that that album. It's just his fashion sense. I mean, he just was always on the forefront of a lot of these things. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, and, yeah. I, I, honestly, I think that people are only. Are, I don't think that we've really hit the tip of the iceberg in terms of how deep people are going to start experiencing the loss of this person yeah. as a as a cultural figure because of what he actually brought to the uh to the table so to speak and how he's literally changed everything uh, you know i think he's one of the he's one of the artists who really kind of um i guess brought the concept of being an artist into popular culture and popular art that uh. made it made it something that was that was viable and acceptable and also kind of like defined it in a way where people could understand it more. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's, we don't have, he's, he's left very, very big uh, shoes behind and we don't have, and, and part, of, part of the significance of his loss is that there's no one right now who's going to fill him. Yeah, that's true. There's no one that's uh, who, who currently, and that's not to say that there aren't talented people out right. there who could. It's just that currently there has been no one groomed, and and the atmosphere doesn't exist wherein someone like this actually could come along, where you would feel that there's sort of like a continuation of that lineage. Yeah, that yeah. there's someone who can kind of like take that and kind of and kind of run with it. Yeah, I've you been, know, I've been trying to find there. I saw a quote. In an article on CNN, which of course I can't find right now, but uh, some quote to the effect of, you know, the universe has been evolving or for four billion years or whatever it's been, and how lucky are we to have existed at the time? Right. Yeah. Of I David saw that, Bowie. that was a great one. That was an awesome quote. I wish I could find it for the exact wording, but it was, yeah. that concept is really true. I mean, uh, he will definitely be remembered, and unlike a lot of other artists who seem to be huge in their day, and then when they're gone. You don't see that that impact anymore. I think he's going to be the opposite. There's a, another good story, if I may, uh, about Space Oddity, which when I think of that, I think of that as a song that broke David. And it almost brought him down, it turns out. Uh, Tony Visconti, who was the producer, hated it so much that he refused to work on it. And they had to get Dust, uh, Gus Dungeon, Dungeon in 
to produce it. So Ken didn't work on that. He worked on all the other stuff in that period, but he didn't work on that song because he was Tony's guy. Oh, wow. Uh, but it turns out that when they released that, it was kind of a minor hit, but it was treated as a as a kind of throwaway pop hit, you know. And in the UK, he was actually looked down upon because of that. And you know, over here, he got some notoriety, but it was all over AM radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah but but everybody thought of it as kind of like a throwaway thing, and he was such a lightweight. I never looked at it like that when I heard that song. As a matter of fact, I I would think to myself, this is kind of insightful. This is coming from another another place, you yeah. know. And, and just yeah, it was pretty heavy. It wasn't yeah, yeah. polite about it. Yeah. So it just goes to show you how you know how different things can be in different cultures too. The UK yeah. versus the America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And it just it just goes to show you that, um, like Michael was saying, I think. You really don't appreciate certain people and certain cultural figures until they're gone, and then you're going to start reflecting and think, "Wow, he yeah. did that." And he was—I mean, just his fashion sense. You know, everybody yeah. you know thinks fashion right now. You think Kanye, but no. well, he pushed—he pushed all the boundaries. Yeah. I mean, he didn't just find one. And what was really interesting about him is the fact that he just—he wouldn't stay stuck. Right. In one place, just at the moment where you thought you figured this guy out, that you understood mm-hmm. what he was doing, he would evolve and he would do it in such a way that was so radically different. You know, like um, <clears throat> one of the things that was significant to me is how people are going on about his ability to kind of shape shift so much. But like, I remember when he went from like Diamond Dogs to like, you know, to, to um, Philly Soul and like disco inside of like, you know, a year and a half or something like that, people hated the shit out of him for it. Mm-hmm. Like people, like he lost so many fans over this, you know, because yeah. he was, he was basically, they felt doing him a, tre- them, he was doing them a tremendous disservice, mm-hmm. you know, and by switching music genres so quickly, you know, <clears throat> with so much facility right. and so much ease, but to them it was a complete letdown. I mean, yeah. never mind like the racial connotations you know, and, and and the cultural connotations of it, but it was I, I I just remember how all that went down. Like he took he took a lot of shit for yeah. that. You yeah, know? Be, because everybody was expecting something else. They're they're expecting you know a, the same thing he had just done. Well, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and and also an audience wants what they want. Yeah. You know, they think that they they I know this artist. I expect this from them, yeah. and when the artist doesn't deliver. In you know, in any case, what the public wants, and it's something that's so radically different. They yeah, can't, they feel betrayed. Or they something. feel betrayed, yeah. and it's and it's something that also culturally goes against the grain of what they're being trained to accept, or what they've trained themselves to accept. How did did you ever come up against a situation with an artist that you're producing that wanted to shapeshift like that into something different? Um, not not too radically. You know, I mean, with a lot of the artists I work with, they wanted something different, but it wasn't like almost a full like 180 away mm. from what people were familiar with. I mean, when I worked with Hole, um, they had been doing very sort of like you know, grunge oriented, very very like you know murky kind of like uh, you know type me. Their records were fantastic, but what they wanted to do with me was something that was really polished and very poppy. So that was kind of like a bit of a departure for them. But for the most part, nothing as extreme as what Bowie would have done. Mm-hmm. 
Because, it, I mean, he came up in a time where he could do that and then establish exactly. himself as somebody who can do that. And, and, you know, again, if you try to do that today, oh, yeah. you would have they and our guys, you'd have the label guys all <laughs> that over. Is you so, management that is a all sin. Over. Yeah. That, is a, that is a cardinal sin. Oh. That we're even having this conversation right now <laughs> and that we're all sitting around agreeing about yeah. it. Yeah. It's disgusting. You know, people have taken the risk out of this whole yeah. thing, and that's a real serious problem. Although, look at Taylor Swift, though, going, you know, country to pop. I mean, that that's, you know, she, it's it's not nearly as far as... Uh, you're talking about a you're talking about a genre shift yeah, between two genres yeah. that are th- that at this particular point in time are so relative to that, one that's another. That's true. You're that right. You, you can't. You know. I mean, pop writers will write for country yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. It's not. It's, it's not, not the as, same. It's I not mean, as going from like the same as going from glam rock to like doing a disco record. No, that's, that's true. Exactly. There and in, in of, the 1970s, no less. Yeah. Wow. There are plenty of positive adjectives about Taylor Swift, but no one calls her a chameleon. No. <laughs> 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 we got like yeah. a one degree right. shit. All right, I was yeah. just looking for something. Okay, yeah. that's the only no, thing I could, I could pull out of my brain. That's, that's, very, the truth that's is, very kind of you. <laughs> the truth is also you can't just be known for being a shapeshifter. I mean, the thing that was amazing about him is he became legitimate in every one of the things he shifted to. Yeah, you know, yeah. there are plenty yeah. of people who are just known for outrageousness, but they're not taken seriously or or, or changing for the sake of changing. Yeah, changing because I need to just change. Yeah, yeah, you never got that from him at all. No, like everything that he did was legit. I mean, God, when he did Fame, that that really Uh, brought a whole new audience to like James Brown records. Oh, that was because he basically stole that riff. Yeah, I think he like heard it through the through through the door or something like that, and they just ripped it off. That's like the first awesome sample record, really. You know, speaking of which, I don't know if you guys (laughs) look at my production blog at all, but. Every Friday, I tried to get an isolated track from someplace and, and post it. And last week, I posted the instrumental only from James Brown's Sex Machine. Oh, I, I think I saw that. I did not listen to it. Though. And what's so fantastic about it, and, and there's no James, although you can hear them off in the background because it was, it was uh, all tracked live. What's so awesome is you listen to this, and it's basically guitar-based drums. That's it. Horns come in, a couple pops. That's it. Mm-hmm. The guitar is what's actually putting the groove in the song, where you usually think it's the drums right. that would happen. Yeah. But in fact, you can't even hear the kick drum. It's non-existent. Mm-hmm. But it's the guitar. It's so together that it, it, that's the groove. And who would have thought? Yeah. You know, it, it's just kind of counter to what, what you'd... You'd expect from James, especially. Mm-hmm. I think if you listen to those records and you kind of break them down, you're going to find that there's um, that there's actually it's the interplay mm-hmm. of all the, oh, of yeah. all the of all the instruments sure. that creates that. It's really really fascinating. Um, uh, and in fact, one of the examples that I gave for like groove stuff in 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 my book was a James Brown song, uh, the a live version of. Uh, I think it was "Give It Up or Turn It Loose" mm-hmm. um, on Live Sex Machine. I, I just love saying that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Live Sex Machine. Uh, you know, because there's a breakdown in the song, and you can hear as he he brings the instruments back in. It starts with the percussion, then he has the drummer come in, and you can hear how each layer kind of each each layer kind of changes the groove. It makes it shift 
you know. Yeah, yeah but yeah. each instrument there. I mean, that's why it's called a rhythm section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but but see, what was interesting? Those guitar players are amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. It's Bootsy Collins' brother. It's Catfish. Yeah, Collins. Catfish. Wow. But what's interesting about this is the fact that the line is very, um, uh, very set, and it's very disciplined. Where the bass, which you expect to be disciplined, in fact, really takes a lot of liberties. Oh, yeah. And same with the drums. And that's why I'm saying the groove comes, in this case, mostly from the guitar because it's very regimented. It doesn't change, you know, very much. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. I know we're off on a tangent here, way way, way far away from where we started. That's that's fine because, you know, David would have wanted it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? He would have been okay with us changing topics like he changed genre. Uh, it was shape shifting. No, but uh, what's exciting? What's going to happen is you're just going to see. You know, he's going to be like like the Beatles, where every generation you just people are going to rediscover and rediscover, and rediscover. I hope and, not. And, you hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I do, and I'm not trying to be a contrarian. I really hope not. I think that we've kind of languished with this music far too long. Huh? Someone's got to make something new that's gonna like that's gonna make people forget about all that. You know, I think that that's <laughs> you can, Yes, I, I totally get what you're saying. I totally get it. But at the same time, man, I I hope the Beatles never go away because it's just some great. great I music. wish they would, and I'll tell you why. Why? Because it would mean that someone's actually come along with something that can knock them off the <laughs> throne. I, okay, I, that I understand. Um, and we're wrapping no. up the audio nowcast now. Uh, uh, but you don't don't you think this is a good, good, good conversation don't you think though I, I understand about something new but there's something to be said about just you know having them around for for future songwriters to to study and I to, have, to listen to you know and, what if if it happens then it happens you know I I, I, there's nothing bad that I could say about the Beatles. Right. If I could, I would ask someone to hurt me. Before I- <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they, I was having a conversation with my, my dear old mom today of all people about this. It's like, you know, the Beatles are in a class by the, by themselves. And this is someone who listens to like opera and classical music. Right. You know, I mean, what are you going to say about this? I would love to see someone come along who could make us forget about this. Yeah. That's I, all I'm saying. No, no, that's, that makes it's, sense. It's, I, it's I understand. 50, it's, it's over 50 years of this shit already, and no one and, and nothing has come along to make people forget this. You know, I, I, I always go back to this. Um, in the 70s, for example, I wasn't listening to doo-wop music. You know, if, if you played a Chuck Berry song on the radio, I would change it. I mean, I'm not that way now. If you, <laughs> I'm going to go for the Chuck Berry song first. Right. Um, maybe that's a function of age. I don't know, but uh, you know, I, I feel I, I'm hopeful that there's music for like successive. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? That's that's a great that's a great point. I I I understand what you're saying. It's like. Why are the Beatles still so relevant? Exactly. Because nobody else has knocked them off the throne. That, and that's the main thing. That's no, the main no, thing. It's pretty hard Hello. to It's pretty hard to make anything irrelevant when so many people are still sampling like stuff from that era. It's like there's no one it it still seems like there's no one's been able to identify what the next big thing is. There'll be some next shift in music. You know, there was jazz and there was rock and roll and there's hip hop. Something is going to be next. 
There's no indication right now of what that's going to be. But we're 50 years. Oh, I know. It's 50 I, years I, from I, the I really time that these done. guys were making this like amazing I, music, and no one has come along to better it. Hey, Rob, you, you spent, what, 30 years with Stevie, right? Mm-hmm. Long time. What were 30 years and two months and <laughs> four days at this point, <laughs> but who's counting? Huh. What were his influences? Uh, I mean, he listens to a ton of different music. I'd say... His biggest direct influence, if you listen to what somebody before him did and then what he did based on it, is probably Sly Stone. Uh, yeah, but he was around before Sly, wasn't he? No. Sure, Fingertips was, was out. since was 63. Yeah, and Sly <laughs> came out uh, late 60, 67, 66, 67. I mean, for, so maybe as a kid, not so much, but in later times, I mean, it's, it's a very clear influence mm-hmm. uh, for any of Stevie's biggest, funkiest stuff. Because the stuff he was doing when he was little Stevie at age 12, whatever, was not the same as what he was doing as a teenager and into yeah, his sure. 20s and 30s. So there's no question Sly was a huge influence. I mean, he listened to a ton of blues. Um, he was very influenced by uh, old R&B. Like his older brother used to listen to a lot of old R&B in the house. And mm-hmm. um, there was always that kind of music around. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna be uh, wrapping this first part up pretty soon. But before we go, we we haven't heard from Scott. Um, Scott, just really quick, we were talking a little bit about David Bowie and and his influence. He just passed, and did did he influence you in any way in any of your music or any of your art that you do? Yeah, you know, one thing I I always appreciated about David was he always didn't feel like he was in the box. He kind of did things his own way. And it was interesting. I think everything from look to music, and um, I don't know. You know, it, it, I've, as I've gotten older, I've, I've, I continue to appreciate everything that he's done. Even back, was it from Diamond Dogs or? Was well, first uh, the, early, the early Man Who Fell to Earth was the first. Well, one. yes, it was, it was way back. But it, it, you know, he, 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 I think I've just a huge amount of respect. I've also enjoyed how he's changed how he's evolved and that's what's great because a lot of musicians kind of are what they are they act they, they do it, it they don't know how to do anything else and they don't evolve and and to see his massive evolution and also the songs he wrote everything from off the hoople like all the young dudes oh yeah who, i forgot about that one you know um again I think how about he, his production the, the oh, fact the that he, yeah. the fact that he produced raw power which is one of the worst sounding records of all time and one of the best at the same time <laughs> yeah, 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 right. you know I mean you play that the, the mix of that record is so shockingly bad from a technical standpoint but yeah. if you like moved even one thing out of place on yeah, it, it it would fall <laughs> it would fall to shit it's so compelling that record it's like oh my god I get goosebumps when I hear it Lou Reed too. Blue Reed. Tra- Transformer. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, an iconic record. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Well, well, it's, you know what? Um, <laughs> the uh, idiot. I don't. <laughs> but you know what? Come on. I, I will feel, you know, I feel that it's great that we had him. And that's one of the things. That you, the only thing you could do to a great artist when they pass is to appreciate the work that they've done. Because that will allow my son to appreciate who he is, and he's only 12. So the whole point is, you know, how do people, you know, you've got Beethoven, you've got Mozart, who knows what's going to be hundreds, you know, a couple hundred years from now, who are the people that are going to last the test of time? 
And it's only going to be those people that pass that to their children and find that music that's appreciated. I mean, the Beatles have been reinvented over and over and over. You know, <laughs> just don't tell Michael about the Beatles. <laughs> hey, on that note, Beethoven, Mozart. No one's knocked them off the. the Yes, but, uh, well, <laughs> uh, they got knocked off pop radio. Here's, here's, the, th- here's the thing, though. Just One interesting point to counter that is that over time, these guys were all, you know, in some way, shape, or form forgotten. Yeah, yeah Beethoven was forgotten who, after he died. I mean, Bach he, was forgotten after he died true. for two hundred years. You're, you're, I mean, like, he, he, right. you know, there was a tremendous renaissance of you know the appreciation of his work. I mean. Um, I don't think Mozart ever quite he yeah, he kind of kind of dipped out of favor a little bit. But the thing is, is that in the evolu- the, in the grand scheme of things, there has to be phases right. where, where someone kind of like you know they they're a little bit less prominent, you yeah. know, they're a little bit less kind of revered as something as newer things come along. They it's have true. to be replaced. Now, like I was saying before, when I was in you know when I was in my teens in the seventies, Chuck Berry song came on, I'd be like, oh, take it off, you know. Now, of course, I'm going to, you know, I love Chuck Berry. He's amazing. You know, you go back to this stuff in time if it's really good and it's going to sustain. It's going to, you know, it's going to have that that staying power. Right. You know, the point that I'm that, that I was trying to make is that we've lost in a lot of ways that continuum that strings all those artists that we're mentioning together. Right. You know, yeah. there's kind of like a break in the, in the, in the, a little gap in the bridge, so to speak. And it's, and it's getting more profound over time. Yeah, but no, you, I, get, I get your point. I'll tell you what, we're going to, we're going to take a break right now. And you know what? We just, I, I got to be honest with the audience. Scott just walked in. <laughs> so, I, I, come on, was, wasn't, you know. <laughs> no, Hi, but, Mike. I'm doing but, fine. How are you? No, but the thing is, is I'm telling this now because um, we're going to do a pickup of your intro right now as soon as we take the break. So it's going to sound like So it's going to sound like you were here from the very beginning because okay. of the masterful editing that we're going to be doing. <laughs> All right. So anyhow, um, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back... We're going to visit with Michael. We're going to find out some more about his stories. There's gobs of stuff that, I mean, it's going to be packed. The second half is going to be packed. So um, we will see you on the other side. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Would you like to be a guest on the Audio Nowcast and live in the L.A. area? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to the Audio Nowcast. And before the break, we were talking about all kinds of things. But mainly, the one thing I got out of the conversation before the break is that Michael hates the Beatles. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Only question: Do you like Rush? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, no. Rob is on a time schedule. We already said <laughs> Sorry, I gave up on amyl nitrate years ago. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing was, <laughs> I said because Scott Scott wasn't here. I go, yeah, we're not going to have that conversation. <laughs> and as soon as you sit down, you bring that up. That's funny. Hey, listen, um, we're going to spend some time visiting with uh, with. Michael right now and uh, but before we get into I want to talk about your career and who you've worked with and you've just worked with some great people um, 
I got your book, and and Michael has a great book, and I recommend it. Everybody, right now, just go buy it. All right, go buy it. You're going to want to buy it. It's it's. Oh, I I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it talks about you know it talks about the production process and mixing and all that in a non tech and a great um, creative um, philosophical artful emotional way. I mean, it's just it's all the stuff that that makes music so good and. And he goes and he explains a lot of concepts and he explains um, a lot of things. I, I started reading it. Bobby said, hey, Michael has a book. And so he sent me a link. <laughs> and I started reading it. And I was just really going to just, you know, kind of brush through a couple pages to do my homework for the whole podcast. And I couldn't stop reading it. I got really hooked. And so I bought it on Google, the Google Playbooks, right? And the reason why I bought it is because I know that there's this read-a-log function on on the books. I can, no, I can't wait. I'm going to show you what it sounds like. The breath on. is baited. <laughs> this is awesome. So I started reading it. I read the introduction. I started the first chapter, and I wanted to continue. And so I listened to most of the book like this. This also helps me develop an awareness of the artist's unique way of Communicating ideas and feelings. I start to pick up on the artist's sensitivities. And that doesn't sound like me at all. <laughs> what do you mean? It sounds exactly like you. <laughs> it does. Among other things, I feel that my job is to create a safe environment for the artist. No, you know what's, no I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm buying it. <laughs> That's very believable, what's, actually. But what's weird, <laughs> as I'm listening to this, if you listen to some of the concepts that he has about emotion, you know, when you talk about emotion and music and what's like, Lacking. It's a little bit of a. <laughs> it was a little contradictory. I was laughing. I was like, I can't believe I'm sitting here listening to this music. I mean, listening to this book that's talking about music from a heartfelt, you know, emotional, and it's about the most unemotional. And a robot is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I just thought of, of just how funny it was. Welcome and, to the modern world. Yeah, and when I got back, I actually had to reread a lot of stuff because some of the sentences that they were reading were not correctly. I mean, I don't even know how they pronounce don't, but it's not don't. <laughs> um, but anyhow, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about about your backstory and how you got into music and, and some of the artists that you've worked with. And really quick, how did, how did this all start? Uh, <laughs> I know you're a musician. I know you come from, from being a musician. Well, you use the word very um, liberally. <laughs> I think I, I, I've never been a particularly good musician. I just really like music <laughs> very, very much. And even the Beatles. Um, <laughs> um no, I, you know, I, 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 this life has always been just about being expressive. That's all. I mean, you know, couldn't find I couldn't find that going to school, so I just kind of left home when I was really young, and you know, couch surfed for several years and played synthesizer in a band <laughs> that happened to have a keyboard attached to it, and you know, just kind of developed that whole. That whole thing, you know, playing in bands, working with other Yes, but a very artists. influential band, though. Um, was it? Yes. I, see, I, 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 I never think about it. Our band was called Material. Um, and it was what? myself, Bill Laswell, um, drummer named Fred Marr, and uh, revolving cast of characters. Lots of different individuals who were pretty seminal back then. Brian Eno, Nona Hendrix, um, a lot of uh, ja- a lot of jazz performers um, whose names 
you probably wouldn't be that familiar with. But uh, that's really that's really where it all started. And you know, I, I, I mean, I guess I guess it felt sometimes like I fell like I fell into the whole thing because stuff just would happen. But you know, it's it, it, it felt like Kiss Kiss met too, like five years after. We started a band. We're in a studio working with Herbie Hancock, making what turned into his biggest record, Rocket. You know, and uh, how did that happen? How did you get the connection with Herbie? Yeah, uh, uh, it, it's it's like all these all these stories. It was pure happenstance. Well, if, if you believe in that kind of thing, I, I personally don't. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Herbie was on his last legs. You know, he was about to get dropped. <clears throat> off Columbia because it wasn't Sony back then. He'd done a bunch of records that just totally stiffed, and they they weren't going to have him back anymore. So he had one more record to do. He had a guy working for him named Tony Mylant, who was his uh, kind of his, his um, assistant, um, and who knew a guy who was working with material. And he, you know, Tony saw that there could be a connection there that that it would be better for Herbie to do something that was pretty off the grid. So we hooked this all up, and um, you know the the idea for Rocket. We were really, really getting interested in hip hop music. It was you know nascent music. I mean, it was it had been around for a little while, you know, but it hadn't. It was nowhere near the mainstream, and you know this was like it was virgin territory, an amazing opportunity, and we kind of thought like, what would a, an artist like Herbie Hancock who had pioneered this form of like jazz rock funk you know fusion um what would have ha- what would happen to him if he'd taken that if he'd maintained that trajectory and not kind of fallen into making these pop records which were you know really kind of were beneath him in a lot of ways if he'd stayed on that course and somehow had uh you know gone crashing into this form of hip hop you know how would he have interpreted that into his, you know, in, in, into what he was doing, and that's really where where Rocket came from. You know, we incorporated a lot of different interesting elements. You know, um, we incorporated the bata drums, the Afro-Cuban drumming, and you know, using obviously a, a DMX drum machine to you know to do the beat, which was very popular and in, in starting to get very popular in hip hop music at that time. And obviously the turntable performance, which is legendary at this point, because right. it really yeah, I mean, kind that's of the first time a lot of people ever heard that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it, it it really it really changed it, it revel and the guy DXT who who did the performance is he's one of like the one of the greatest at that particular form. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it, it was an amazing amazing thing to part to be a participant in. It was it was life changing and. Not being someone who'd ever had any kind of like success of, <laughs> of any kind at that point in time, I had no way to gauge it. I just knew that I was in the midst of something that was absolutely remarkable. You know, I, you, you could just feel there was something really electric about it. Um, you know, no one had any idea of what it was going to turn into, but yeah, that, um, that was that was the beginning. And did you know when you were working on it that it was going to be as monumental as it turned out? Well, no, like I'm saying, I had I, I didn't even have. Nah, there was nothing no special idea. about any of the sessions. Like no, no, no. Hey, well, this is kind of kind of cool. Is, this is the thing. Like I, um, 
there was such a strong vibe around the song as it was being created. Like each, you know, we, we kind of mapped out this whole thing. I came up with like the drum part and it was really funny because I didn't know how to use the DMX then. And I, um, so I'm programming the part and I wanted to put drum fills in, but for some reason it didn't occur to me that I should program a separate beat that had the dr- that had the drum part and the fill inside the beat. So I programmed all the drum fills outside of you know outside of the bar. So there'd have to be like a stop. The the, the momentum of the song would have to kind of like you know completely come to a halt as this drum fill played. Right. Which was it wasn't intentional. It was just kind of like an accident. And then we started playing it, and I was like. Wow, that's actually really cool. <laughs> you know, but it was a complete accident. It was like, I just want to have some drum fills in there. Um, but each successive part that came down, it just felt like it fit like a glove. Like there was no question whether or not it worked. How it involved just, was Herbie during all of that? Not even. <laughs> I'm just asking. No, no. Herbie's uh, involvement came after we got all the basic rhythm stuff done, like all the sound effects and all the the, um, the percussion, the bass, the turntable, we flew to Los Angeles and uh, we worked with Herbie at his studio. And there we added all his, all his keyboard parts and the vocoder part. Mm-hmm. And uh, I added like an electronic percussion part that I, that I wanted to put in. And... Um, you know, that's that's how it came together. It was completely organic. No one had any preconceptions of what they were doing or what it was going to be. Um, Herbie had no idea what he was listening to. He didn't, you know, he, I don't think that he, that he really connected with it, actually, mm-hmm. which was very interesting. Uh, Dave Jordan, who was the engineer on the project... He said to me later that Herbie would come to him every so often and he'd, be, he'd look at him and be like, this is really cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Okay, so it blows up. Then what? Um, I, I was in a state of shock, <laughs> really. <laughs> it, it, was, it was crazy. But, like, um, you know, after that, um, as a production team, Bill and I started to get like approached to do lots of other records. I um, except that, that at that point in time, I wasn't being apprised that this was happening. So <laughs> that's a problem. That's a, that's a nice way of saying. That. Did you like that? I I I, <laughs> I took a course in diplomacy. Um, it, yeah, I mean, needless to say, things didn't go so well after that. And, you know, I, I just kind of set out on my own, and I was, I, I kind of, um, I hit the streets after that trying to find work, and it didn't, things didn't go very well, you know. So I was, I was struggling for about another three, four years. Um, and uh, then after going into countless A&R people's offices, going like, could you please hire me? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I met a guy named uh, Michael Barrickman who had a band. You know, he was like, you know, I think we might have something that you would, that you would be good for called the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, that was, that was an interesting, they were, that was a hard luck story in and of itself, you know. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you read Wikipedia, uh, you know, it, it seems like there was, Mother's Milk was kind of a, a, a rough, Oh my rough God! 
journey, you know? That was tough. Um, it was interesting because, like, after Uplift, I felt that there was a lot of friction from Anthony, from the singer, um, you know, because he'd gone through, he'd, he'd basically gotten clean. And uh, that was a tough journey for him. Um, and uh, there was also a lot of friction between him and Flea, which resulted in neither of them coming to the studio after a while. So we, uh, John Frashanti and I would go months sitting in the studio by ourselves trying to work this whole record out. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like left up to us to finish the whole thing. And um, it was, you know, I, I was like, well, someone's going someone's gonna to have to navigate this ship. It's going to have to be me. I mean, that's why they gave me the job. So that's pretty much how the record got done. And that was a success. I mean, it was a huge success for those guys. It did pretty well. <laughs> it, did, it did okay for them. A lot you know? of people got introduced to the Chili Peppers on that album. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. the kind of broke into mainstream. Yeah, it was a it was a big one for them, and I think after the uplift record, they were, the record company who prior to that point they had no interest in. And actually, what was really interesting is that I think there were people at the record company who disliked them so much that they were prepared to sort of let them rot on the vine at EMI. They wouldn't let them add their contract. Um, little did they know. <laughs> little, did they, little did they know. And yeah. you know the 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 first record we did came out. It did you know reasonably well. It sold twice as much as the as the previous ones. And all of a sudden, the record company's going like, hmm, you know. So all of a sudden, we've got resources to really kind of put into this into this next record. <laughs> and uh, you know, it it went well. And you know, another thing was is that they had a secret weapon because they had John Frusciante at that point right. who really. I think that for the Chili Peppers, their their pivot, their point of pivot is really dependent on who their guitarist is. Because, well, it's because the guy has to be a songwriter. Mm. And John John is very well-versed in composition, and he's a very gifted songwriter. And... Um, you know, with without that, I think that they all that they were always that they would always struggle more. You know, but John really he he really brought the goods, the stuff that they needed to evolve in a really really in a way that defined that that, that helped define who they who they were going to be as as a band. I bet that A uh, and R people wanted to talk to you after that, right? Um, it, 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 it happened. <laughs> there, were co- there were a couple. I mean, you worked on some, like, uh, the Violent Femmes, you know? Yeah, that, yeah. that, come on, that's another great album there. And, uh, how was that working with, with those guys? And, and you know what? I'm not going to go through your career on all the different bands. <laughs> but that, I'm just curious well, about that would be one. fun. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of them. The, the, and Soundgarden, but let's, let's. Do you have any favorites? Um, yeah, I got a I got a bunch actually. You know, um, not based on the not based on the experience so much because like some of them were really really hard to make. I mean, I, but I, that could be good. I mean, it could be hard, but at the end, could be very fruitful. Yeah, I mean, for you know, yes, fulfilling. Yeah, definitely. I I you know I'm I love the Soundgarden record that I did. I you know I mean. It's a great it's, record. Thank you. It's a great, yeah. great record. Yeah, it is. Thanks. I'm, 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 really, I'm really proud of it. You know, I think it's a pinnacle for them. And, 
I mean, I, I feel it's a pinnacle for me as well. You know, the, that one I, I love, the Manson one I love, the whole one I love. Yeah, you know. I was going to talk about Manson. How was it working with Marilyn Manson? Um, he was very professional. You know, I mean, he was he was given to occasionally acting like a real buffoon <laughs> in, in, in the studio, you know, but like... When he really hunkered down and just knew what he had to do, and was he, he could focus really well, you know. I mean, he's very, very silly, <laughs> and he did a he did a, a lot of stuff. And I've got some very, very interesting and telling <laughs> photographs that could get certain people into an immense amount of trouble. <laughs> but don't worry, they're hidden someplace. No one will ever find them. But how was it working with the Violet Femmes, though? I'm just, I was just kind of curious on that. It was kind of tough. It was kind of tough. I mean, they were... Um, a lot of attitude? A lot of... There just was a little... That, th- that th- whole persona that they kind of have? There was a... Well, I think it was a little bit more kind of passive-aggressive than what you would think. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was hard. Like, I think that they were very jaded at that point. Gotcha. And uh, that didn't make the process any easier. But, you know, I, I was hoping that we, could make, that we could do something that would make them kind of put that, I guess, enthusiasm into what they were doing. Because I felt that that was kind of starting to, that it was kind of lacking from, from some of their, you know, more recent work compared to what I'd done. And... Uh, you know their their first record is like a, you know it's a it's a classic. Yeah. But there's a lot of piss and vinegar on that record too, and you know I was hoping that maybe we could you know get get a little bit of that back. I don't really think that we quite hit the mark on that one, but you know it worked out. It worked out okay for them. Well, just from looking at all your discography here, and it seems like you've worked on a lot of records where artists have changed, or you've taken it in a different direction, or you or it's been pinnacle. I mean, even looking like. Celebrity Skin for Hole, you know, that that, yeah, came, that yeah. came out. That was a real big change for them and put them in a different light also. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that, I guess, a- a- aesthetics-wise, my, my hope is that when I'm working with an artist, that it's going to be, you, you know what it's like, like you, from, I guess, the, the generation that we're from, you're always trying to do better. Yeah. <laughs> you always listen, you listen to... You're, you're familiar with an artist's work, and the first thing that pops into your head is like, "How do I improve? How, you know, how is this a progression?" Because when you're when you're on that timeline, you're always going up. Right. You don't have it in your head like, eh, "I can coast a little bit on this record, or maybe I should make a real shitty record this time." <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I want to I want to change it uh, a little bit. I want to get away from. I mean, if you want to find out what Michael's worked on, just go to the Wikipedia, and you'll see just just tons of tons of great records and and great artists. But I, I want to talk about a couple things, and even before we get to your to your book, um, one of the things that you Google your name <laughs> and up pops the uh, you know Michael Beinhorn fires drummers and that that whole thing back around what 2012 that was like a really big thing you know I mean people were talking about that oh yeah but what what's you know you can go on your blog and kind of read your response which by the way is brilliant I mean what you say is brilliant but um, can you expand on that a little bit can you tell a little bit about some of the stuff you were hearing you know um, as far as what people were saying on the different Boards and different websites and things like that. <laughs> it was uh, well. I, um, well, to tell you the truth, I didn't really like. 
I didn't feel like searching around because I knew that a lot of it was going to be hostile. Right. You know, and uh, I, I just don't feel like there's enough time in life to kind of pursue that, to actually to actively look for something that's going to rile you up. <laughs> yeah, that like, makes sense. I mean, I'd rather go get my car, like put gas in my but you car. Heard, you, but you were aware of it, and obviously you heard of you heard. Oh, man, I had people write me emails. Huh. You know? How did it get started? It got started because the the drummer from Hole, Patty Schemmel, had a had a movie like a documentary done about her, and um, in the documentary they kind of they focus on the making of that celebrity skin record, and uh, they kind of like they, they they singled a certain record producer out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody needs a villain, okay? Every movie needs a villain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was it was it was intense, you know. I mean, I actually I finally got around to watching it because I was kind of like, well, I mean, if people are going to talk shit about per- about you, you, you should probably know what it is exactly that they're <laughs> saying instead of you know being reactive to it, and not knowing exactly what the substance is. So I saw it, and you know, now now I know what that's about, <laughs> and, you know. Um, but people it it was it was interesting because it really brought up a lot of emotional stuff and it also shows how easily people can get vilified in the internet court of public opinion with you know when people don't really know the facts you know the, and the, the historical elements of what really what really goes into a situation you know that there that people are very willing and we see this all over facebook now <laughs> with the way people talk about politics and stuff so relentlessly right holy mackerel <laughs> well you know let, let me add something here and and we talked about this when i had you on my pa- podcast as well uh i had kelly scott the drummer from failure and who was also in linda perry's house band for a long time and we got to talking kelly and i got to talking and out of the blue, he said, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Michael Beinhorn. I said, well, explain. And he said, well, when I first got to town, I was in a band with two drummers. The other drummer was uh, older, someone who was older, very experienced, and, and really knew what to do in the studio. And I was young and, and you know, just full of piss and vinegar and wanted just to flail around all the time. And Michael took me aside and said, look, you're not going to be on this record at all unless you get it together. Here's what I want you to do. Here's Back in Black and go shed it over the weekend. And when you come back, this is what I I want you to to learn and let's see what happens. And Kelly said, if it wasn't for that, he, he wouldn't have made the jump. He didn't think he would make the jump to being a real professional drummer. Hmm. And he, he just was very, he went on and on and on about you and how much you helped. And then it's funny because when I brought that up to you, you said, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> but, but it just goes to show you that though, you know, you're getting vilified for being hard on a drummer. Well, but it's for the right reason. The, the thing about it is, if you're my, my feeling about this is, if you're being hired to produce a record, you have an immense responsibility to the people who've hired you, and that and one thing that falls outside of the purview of that responsibility is to try and is to try and like suck up to people, or or or, or make them. Or give them a false sense of security about something that's likely to be highly detrimental to not only them, but to the project that we're all working on together. I mean, if you will, if you basically 
justify the mediocrity of what winds up being the weakest link in your chain. Right. You're doing the most extraordinary disservice and the most extraordinary amount of damage to the, you know, to the project that you're working on. And to me, that completely discounts you from having that position. You should be fired on the spot for doing that. You know, and and I don't think it's any different from any other industry too. It's Hell like no. you gotta you gotta you gotta <clears throat> demand excellence, and you have to demand you know perfection really from whatever you're doing. I mean, Scott, in your in your in sound design, yes. right? I mean, you have no problem letting a cutter go if they can't cut it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, look, I'll give somebody two to three days, you know, and it's one of those things to say, okay, uh, it's not what I want. Uh, let's take you this direction. Okay. And if I see them flail, I look, I, I don't believe in yelling. I don't believe in making people feel bad. However, I do a responsibility. And if they're on it, they're on it. And if they're not, then I need to spin you off and get somebody who can. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty fast because, you know, I just can't, I don't have the time or the budget. Right. And but Rob, the, the difference is when you're working with a band who's part of the band who's an integral part of the band on some level, yeah. it's really difficult to do that. It's difficult, but this is the thing about the, about the project, this, that specific project. Like, I got actually tasked with two missions when I met with, the, with this artist, um, both of which wound up being you know, uh, contradictory to one another. Um, the, first, the first mission was, we want to make a really flashy pop record. Like, we want to make something that's, you know, they were using Fleetwood Mac and you know, and ABBA and things like this as reference points. And I was kind of like, okay, so I get that in my head. The next mission is you can't fire the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like you flash forward to the point where I have an initial conference with the band after having worked with the drummer in the studio. Now keep in mind that I went in pre-production with them for a month and a half because I was like, okay, I'm not firing this person, so I have to make damn sure that she can play her part. So I'm going to sit with her. And work, you know, we're going to work side by side and get this shit right. But with the technology today, you know, it's interesting when you were talking. um, No. Can you you fix it? Sorry. I I, I don't mean to be rude. (laughs) But I knew, see, the thing is, I knew the question that you were going to (laughs) ask. And the answer to that is you can make a drum performance sound like it's in time. And most people do. And being in time in this case means that you will move drum hits over to the nearest 16th note, <laughs> in effect, turning it into a machine. You've got a cyborg. Right. You know, when, the minute that you do that, though, the minute you go down that slippery slope, you have, you're, in the, you're in a process of relieving a drum performance of everything that makes it musical, that makes it listenable. You know, the drum performance is the foundational part of, the, of, of a song. Assuming that there's drums on it, <laughs> if, you know, if it came from outside, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, if you take the things away from it that make it desirable, and what makes it desirable is not just the fact that someone's playing a cool beat or that they're keeping time; it's the feel. Yeah, you don't listen sure. to John Bonham because he just because he, you know, I like his beat. You know, he he's got a groove. I mean, speaking of like broken down like music where you're hearing like separate parts i'm sure you've heard like his drum solo excised from whole from whole lot of love yeah 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 um which is 
in and of itself, just listening to that alone is one of the most compelling things that you can do. Just drums. Yeah. yeah. Right. It sounds so good. It feels so good, yeah. And at the end, when he's losing it and shouting. Yeah. Yeah, right. Oh. Oh, yeah. God. See, well, well, you know, it's funny you should say that. Uh, Ken Clay, who produced the Fleetwood Mac, big Fleetwood Mac records. Oh, boy. And what a good job did he do. He played me the multi-track of Dreams, the Stevie Nicks song that was a huge hit, number right. one. Yeah. And he solos up the hi-hat. And just off the hi-hat, listening to the groove, you go, that's a hit. Just off the fucking hi-hat, it was wow. so good. You listen to this, you go, that's a hit. That's a hit. But I found out <laughs> later <laughs> what it was. It was a loop. Yeah? Oh. And they, they looped the hat, and then they... But, you know, it was like a 16-bar loop. It was a long loop, but it, it had, the matter. had the feel. It had the feel. It had the feel. And the thing is, is that, like, all those... See, those are all the component parts that add up to making something really great. So the answer to your question is, you can, make, you can put something in time, but you can't fix a record to be something that's going to be compelling in the way that you really want it to be. From a musical standpoint, you know... The, the, the best records, the most compelling records have that. You don't really, you don't, you, you don't hear records made, um, you know, in the past 15, 20 years or whatever, you know, where drums have been like heavily, heavily edited and where the, the groove is just sucked right out of them. But do you think, you know, it's always interesting, like I deal with a lot of animation and, it, and then look at where animation was and where it's going. When I mean, you look at some of the Pixar stuff. Whoever's animating is really starting to learn performance and subtleties. Where you looked before, there was nothing, none of that didn't exist. And it was all very kind of wooden, mm-hmm. kind of a groove. Mm. And then what's interesting is the animator. So the question, I guess, would be you know, when you're as a producer, you deal with politics. Somebody, like when I deal with actors, and I'll see the performance and I'll like, oh crap, they're not phrasing their dialogue correctly, which makes it feel wrong. But they don't know it. So then the director looks at me and goes, we have a problem. You know, it's like someone always talking like that. Eh. I mean, there's no phrasing correctly. There's a serious dichotomy going yes. on. Yes, and, and it hurts the project. Yep. So now the question is, what can I do in a way that's invisible? Because as a good whatever I do as a sound designer, my job is that nobody should ever know what I do. So if I manipulate something in such a way and do it organically, then sometimes the actors don't even know it changed. Mm -hmm. I think the question is, if you do it in a way that exposes, like you said, it becomes sterile, lack of rhythm, it becomes inhuman. Mm Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, sure, you see the man behind the curtain and it doesn't work anymore. But you know what you're looking for. That's the, or in, in, the case of, in this case, you know what you don't want. Sure. You, know what's, you know what isn't working. You don't want to perfect it. You just want to fix it, which you, is a big difference. You, you want everything to be in sync. You, want every, you, you don't want things to feel like there's any disparity going on. Right. Where you listen to it and you're convinced. Where, you're not, where, where your, your concentration isn't like taken away from what you want people to be focusing on when they, when they hear what you've done. Sure. You know, and that comes obviously either from being able to do something technical where you didn't involve the uh, quote-unquote talent or something where you actually aren't having this conversation with, with the performer and, and trying to help them through it and help them understand what it is that they're not getting that you would like to have more of. Sure. The thing about 
you know, when you talk about correcting things and going, you know, mechanical versus, you know, the feel and stuff like that, with drums, the drum beat is a really complex thing. Most people think it just lands on the on the 16th note and and it's just one finite point. But when you're working with a good drummer who has feel, that you realize that that finite point becomes a landing strip and they know where to land that airplane and they know how to land it on the part of the beat that works well for that. And that's that human feel. It's like, you know, a good solid groove. I, I had the honor of like and I mentioned this on the podcast, you know, of touring with Steve Gadd. You know, <laughs> and Steve Gadd, you know, his beats sometimes were not anything difficult, right? But the, they were in the, the feel, the, the, it was like he just knew how to play and he just knew how to push and pull back and stuff like that. And I think that's the part that, that people have a disconnect with as far as it's not quantized, you know, okay. and there's, no, well, there's no swing factor. I'm always curious, though. I mean, the great musicians are great musicians and they're just wonderful. And it's great when they can play live and you just, it, it's awe and it's fun and it's just all these great things. I see, though, so much of entertainment, I'm going to call it entertainment than anything else, where they find an artist, they dance, they look good, they're sellable, they may not be the best musician, doesn't really matter, but they can make it work. So but now that's not who you work with, though. No. No, he's ta- you're, you're yeah. talking about something Pop. completely different. I mean, there's, there's a whole massive industry of people, so I'm always curious where those lines are. Well, in, in the industry that you're talking about, see, that, that's a, a completely separate universe. Um, in that industry, there is, a, there is absolutely no overlap between, uh, between creating something that's prefabricated and creating something that, that unfolds and develops organically, mm-hmm. where there's actually an expressive component that's meant to have some kind of significance or meaning to someone who encounters it, where you can listen to it as a piece of popular music or mm-hmm. as a piece of art where someone's actually trying to engage you in a dialogue, which is what, uh, you know, I, I feel that art is supposed to do. Sure. Let me, uh, you know, that this is a great place um, to mention your book because oh. this is where a lot of where your book comes from is, um, is that, that place um, unlocking creativity and, and, why don't we just tell us a little bit about your um, your philosophy on the book and how it's not quite the technical, you know, you're not going to find, you know, how to <laughs> mic a drum with It's a- not like my books. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you know what? That's what's so awesome about yeah. right now because I've got Bobby Osinski on one side. I, this is why I was so giddy for this podcast because Bobby, you know, guru of studio books, 30 books, you know, will tell you how to do all this stuff. Great books. And then you've got Michael's book on this other side talking about approaching the exact same thing through a creative place. On a completely different level. On a different level, yeah. and they just meld so well together. Tell us a little bit about your well, book and the, mean, philosophy, the, the philosophy behind it. The thing is is that Bobby has forgotten more about recording than I'll probably ever learn. So, well, you know, thank I don't, you, but I don't think nothing, it's the case, but thank you. <laughs> there's nothing that I, that I could really add to, the, to, the na- to that narrative anyway. You know, but something that occurred to me over time was that, like, we're losing culturally and creatively and every, in, in so many ways this, is, this aesthetic of how to treat everything that we do 
as an art form, as an extension or expression of ourselves, and that no one has really uh, identified this in in record production or, or, or recording music. But record production and music recording are essentially their art forms. They're they're a, um, a vehicle through which music is is um, is is given to people. Um, you know, and so the the vehicle has to be appropriate. You know, it it has to it has to speak to people, um, and it has to be able to communicate. It has to communicate, help communicate the artist's idea as perfectly and fluidly as possible. And you know, I just felt that there really hadn't been very much discussion about this, if at all. <laughs> Actually, you know, and and I was like, well. Um, I just started thinking about some of the protocols that I kind of um, that I incorporate when I would make a record, and that kind of began extrapolating. I mean, I started with like ten or fifteen pages, and it started growing and growing, and all of a sudden, I'm like, "Oh shit, I'm writing a book." <laughs> you know, I, I figured, well, you know, I'll have this for posterity or something like that, and then it just turned into something else. And I, you know, I started thinking about, well, how do I work with artists? You know, this is—I guess this is very interesting. And I also started thinking about what what of my process would I want to share with someone else? Would someone else find this compelling? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I it doesn't really matter to me if they find it compelling or not. If they do, I'll be very happy. But I feel that the information needs to be put out there anywhere, and, and perhaps it'll resonate with the right people. It, you know, it's, uh, let me ahead. say something quickly. One of the best parts of your book, Michael is the diplomacy aspect. And I say that because I wish I could do what you do in the studio. You cite some very specific examples, and there's, there's at least one in every chapter, and, and there's several, of a situation, and this something is something that actually happened to you, and usually there's some sort of confrontation or potential confrontation, or some concern that's happening, and how you diffuse it in a way where everybody's happy. Which I, I look at every single one of these, and I think, I wish I could do that, or, gee, i got to remember that next time this happens. So that's one of the brilliant parts of it, because, let's face it, when we're in the studio, especially at, in a production aspect, one of the most difficult and challenging aspects is that diplomacy factor because there's all – and you're in the middle. You, you have, it's your job. You've got to sort that out. And you have a wonderful way of doing that in the book. And it's, the book is worth it just for that <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I appreciate that. It, it's, a, it's a great book. I mean if you just download the sample and get the table of contents mm-hmm. – and, and I'm just going to read you really quick a couple of the chapters. I mean you do everything from the record producer, prep work um, – who and what is an artist? You talk about drums and drumming, but you also talk about really cool things about um, things like how do you perceive sound? Uh, I mean, even meditation. I mean, all kinds of really cool things that that as much as you say it's 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 not a technical book, you go over pretty much all the same stuff you would read in a technical book, you know. And but and, coming from a different place, from, though. exactly yeah. Yeah. from a different a different it's a method- perspective. It's a methodology it's, it's, and, and and more philosophical. It's mm-hmm. not like you know, use this piece of equipment to get this kind of sound. Uh, you know, it's 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 a whole it's a whole different thing. But the thing is, is is that like one of the best 
know, one of the best things that the, the, the discoveries that I made was understanding what my intent was in, in every kind of situation, using that as kind of like a, a, like a, a guidance system to be able to plot how I would, how I would go into stuff, how, you know, uh, you know, what kind of equipment I would use even, but also how, how I would be speaking to people. If I can put the mission of the project that I'm working on and what I'm bringing to it, what I want to offer, you know, how I, how, how I hear a project kind of coming together, what the, what the vision of it is, it, it's weird because it, that, that it, understanding that intent alone kind of like creates the the narrative that needs to be shared with the artist to create to create that diplomacy. It's not something, you know, wh- like you were saying before when when I couldn't remember that I had that conversation with Kelly. It's it's because all that stuff just sort of flowed out. I, it wasn't like rehearsed or anything <laughs> like yeah. that. It just sort of happens and then it's gone and it's sort of you know. It, it's in the ether, but the fact that that happened and that, that it meant so much to him is that's the value in it right there. Yeah. I mean, I have no f-ing idea what I said to him, <laughs> yeah. but like, you know, but like the, the, the beauty in that is the fact that it stayed with him and that it actually like it resonated with him and meant so much to him. I mean, that, that when you told me that, it just it made me feel wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to have to start wrapping this up. But, Michael, this has been so awesome. We're going to have you back. Because uh, this you. has been so much fun, and there's Sorry so much to monopolize more. so much. No, well, that's the point. That's the point. You, you, you. <laughs> oh, I get it now. Oh, okay. But I, I'll tell you what. When I was reading the the table of contents on your book, the one thing that I can't wait to read is chapter eight because chapter eight is, I think, if more people would read this chapter, um, and I'm dying to find out what you say. Which about it, it says chapter eight is, <laughs> what is this song about? <laughs> which really is such a simple concept but yeah but so much now the answer is it's about four minutes yeah so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing to reading that chapter and then passing it on to a few people I know. have to let me know what you think <laughs> I will I will after I, I read the book um, actually we have a holiday this weekend see it's going to be some holiday room, oh there you so. go yeah um, but anyhow, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Like I said, we're going to have you back. We'll have thank you, you back. Yeah. And um, Rob, it's good to see you again. Yes, Mike. It's good to see you too. You know? In person, not yeah, on Skype. Live. I, and you know what? You made it all the way through. Yeah, I did. I know. I know. It was a great conversation. <laughs> you ever had to fire anybody? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. But yes, I've had to fire people. Yeah, it's, it sucks, right? Uh, yeah, it really is. <laughs> Had to, I've had to fire people and have it go really badly and then end up having to work with them again. Oh. <laughs> Which is the only thing that yeah. can make it worse. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, I'm, names have been uh, avoided here to protect me. <laughs> the only thing worse than I think, I think than actually firing somebody is when you start a project and you have to tell somebody else because it's not your gig, but you know that somebody else has to be fired because that's the weak, mm-hmm. the weak link in the process. You know, you just feel like such a hill, but you're like, dude, you cannot keep that person. <laughs> the truth is, though, what Michael said is true. If you're brought in as a producer, because that's the capacity where I've had these same issues. If you're brought in as a producer, your responsibility is to the product, which your own you know, dignity is kind of going to revolve around for a while, and the people who hired you. Yeah. So if you're carrying around some dead weight or putting up with a bad situation that's going to affect the product, you're not doing anybody a service by just rolling over and saying yes. I mean, you got to do what's right for the project. 
And if you realize that you don't want to have to make those hard calls, then it's probably just not the right project for you. Or the right job for you. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. The, the thing is, is that like, if, you, if, you, if you see things from like an objective point of view, one of which is the fact that this is a recording. It's going to last forever. Mm-hmm. You know, any decision that you make is going to have long-term consequences. So if you decide, I don't want to piss anyone off, you know, I'll just back away from this. And, you know, I'm sure it won't be great, but it won't be terrible either. And I'll make the best out of it that I can. You know, you have to live with that choice for the rest of your life. And you also run the risk of damaging seriously the artist that you're working with. Yep. So you have to think very carefully before you do stuff yep. like that. And that should always be something that people, like a guideline that people work to. Yep. Well, the I, name of the book. I was just going to say, uh, if we're talking about messed up uh, just career experiences like this, I remember, because I have had to fire someone and then work with them again. I also once got, not fired, but like booted out of a job by someone who I did not get along well with and ended up coming back later as that person's boss. Poetic <laughs> <laughs> justice. That was amazing poetic justice. <laughs> <laughs> every eber, evil fiber of my being enjoyed that person. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Well, hey, hey listen, the, awesome. The, name of the, the name of the book is Unlocking Creativity, Producer's Guide to Making Music and Art by Michael Beinhardt. And it's on Amazon, it's on Google Play Books, it's on Kindle. I mean, it's you can find it. I really, I suggest just go out and buy it. If you're thinking about, even if you're not a producer and you just want to find out more about the process and make your own product better, you should read it. And even if you're not a musician and you want to actually have fun read, you should read it. So there's, there's a lot of people out there that should read this book. All right, before we go, um, Rob. You uh, you working on anything that you can talk about or anything you can? Well, in my never-ending saga of production and diplomacy, I'm uh, getting ready to go back to Austin again. Actually, at three o'clock tomorrow morning, which is (laughs) why I'm wrapping this up now. Uh, uh, To work with the misses, we're still having great success. Our Christmas record did really well, and now we're planning the releases for this year. Uh, Just finishing up two more songs, and things are going great for them. Great. So going back to Austin, we have a gig. They've been doing a lot of. Uh, social outreach in Austin in, in a lot of chari- charitable work that's also tied in with music which is an easy thing to do in Austin because everything revolves around music. That's so awesome. I'm about to go back and do some stuff with them. Michael, you working on any records right now you can talk about or any music projects or any books or anything? Um, I got a couple of things that I'm working on and I'm probably going to I'm going to start a project uh, toward the end of next month and be overseas for well, a little while. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Scott, how about you? Anything you can talk about? I mean, I know you're working on stuff you can't talk about. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking that when I was going, oh, that's going to be my turn. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> so uh, I played the fifth. <laughs> All right. Bobby, how about yourself? Uh, I just had a little bit of uh, success, which is kind of cool. Um, single I did for Snoo. Uh, just went number five on iTunes, which is kind of fun. Wow. Nice. That's always kind of, nice. always a little surprise. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and other than that, you know, it's the same thing. It's books. It's uh, new books. It's uh, podcasts, blogs, <laughs> et cetera. So the same old thing. Yeah. Why don't you mention where your podcast is again? Um, what's the URL for your podcast? Oh, it's Uh 
It's uh, my inner circle, Bobby Osinski's it, inner circle. It's a, it's a good podcast. So that, and actually, I just finished up number ninety-two. Wow, wow. So catch up with you're, you're uh, catching up. Pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, say, I have been approached by people who heard my uh, appearance on your podcast. Just people approached me in the wild saying they really liked. It. Oh, so, excellent! Well, it's always nice to hear. Getting the word out there. Yeah, it's good. You got great guests, and it's well, Michael was one of them just recently. Yeah. So awesome. it, it's, yeah, it was a it's pleasure. Awesome. How about you, Always Mike? nice chatting with you. Yeah, likewise. Um, I'm working on a uh, on a series right now. I, I can't say anything. And by the way, I got another email about people. Actually, they shouldn't say people because most people understand. But somebody was complaining about us not saying anything. And let me just reiterate: we can't say anything because we can't break a lot of. We can't tell you the titles. We can't say anything because some of the stuff people don't even know is in production, and. This is our deal that we have. We will tell you we're working on it. We're all working in the industry. And when we can talk about it, we will. Um, and we're not trying to do anything other than just telling you that we're working. And I think that's one of the magic, magical things about this podcast is everybody is in the industry and working. So if you're going to send me an email complaining about that, please don't. <laughs> or there's a working title that's not the real thing. Or, yeah, yeah, I mean, well, there's lots of reasons. You know, I, 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 you know I, I can't. I, and, and Scott can't. And it's literally, we, say, we sign NDAs. And I know earlier podcasts, I've probably talked about stuff that I shouldn't have talked about. Um, but it's just, it's just the, look, if you're going to be in audio, and especially if you're going to work in this town, you're going to be signing all kinds of agreements. And you really can't talk about it. Now, we approach everything from a technical point of view, so there's a little wiggle room there, but don't expect If titles. you're in the middle of it, you can't talk about it, but when it releases, yeah. we can talk all about we'll it. We'll talk all, all about it. A lot of times yeah. we'll say, you know that thing I couldn't talk about in January? Exactly. You know, it was this thing that yeah. just came out. I'll have to show you guys that email if I can find it. It was not nice. But, <laughs> really? Yeah, it just surprised me, because I, I, I know I do this every couple podcasts. I kind of apologize for it, you know? Because I know sometimes we go around the room and nobody can talk about what they're working on. Huh. But, this is all really cool stuff, gang, and and I think you know it just it keeps us relevant, and you know you want to hear about what we're going to be working on when we can talk about it. Well, you know? send us that email, Mike, so we can do what they wrote. Maybe we can help make them a little more famous in the industry. That would be fun. You need outreach. Yeah, we need outreach. You need an A&R staff. We can make them our pet project. You know, just because to show you, though, people will find a negative about anything. Anything, you know? If you give them free food, they're going to complain that it's not enough salt. You know? You're around the wrong people. It doesn't happen at my house. Everyone's grateful and happy about everything. Well, that's good. Wow. As it should be. Like I think, you know... I'm the same way, so there we go. Yeah. Um, the other thing I will I want to talk about, you know what? We can't talk about it now, but I wanted to talk about creating space, but we just had too much fun visiting with Michael. So maybe in another podcast, we're going to talk about um, creating space, creating space in your projects without reverb, with EQ, however you want to do it, um, and working on a project where they don't like reverb. So I'm having to create space in really other creative ways. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But I remember last podcast i talked about the cargo cult and spanner and and slapper and i've been using that on this new series and oh my goodness that is such a great slapper is such an amazing plugin i mean i know i i was gushing about it last time but the more i use it the more it just becomes an indispensable tool in my arsenal and they came out with a uh, a two-channel version so 
it's truly digital delay. Who would have thought you could huh. take it to that <laughs> to that level? But it's uh, it's really great. So I just wanted to give those guys another plug. And the more I use it, it's awesome. And I know you use Spanner, right? I'm oh yeah, huge yeah. Spanner. That's Spanner, just... and, I, and I got contacted from the podcast from the Slapper guys. Yeah, that, well, they said they mentioned on our on our Twitter. I saw that they were just they were just it and, it, awesome. and it's great. Yeah, I mean, you, I love you know I, me. I love the toys. But I love what you can do with them. Oh, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. Just from the fact if you automate Spanner, it makes so much more sense. You, you look at that and you're thinking, why didn't Avid just design their channel with no. that as the panner in the first place? Because have you ever tried to, to go into the automation of a 5-1 channel um, coming off a mono track oh, and trying God, to, yes. to just or, like yeah, or a stereo you, track? My, it, fav- my favorite one is LCR. Can't do anything with it. Yeah. Put Spanner on that, pop in the surround, you can put, you know. If you're going to start sentences with, why didn't Avid? <laughs> we're going to be here for a long time. That's uh, uh, <laughs> so true. Uh, but the more oh, you use, man, you know. But the more that, you use some of these the tools. the thing I've heard all evening, I think. <laughs> it just makes sense. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. It's just, it just makes so much sense. So, anyhow, um, I know we're giving them two podcasts in a row, but I'm just so excited about that. All right, well, hey, I want to um, just thank everybody um, for uh, following us to 2016. This Woo-hoo. is this is going to be our 10th year podcasting in April. We're going to celebrate our 10 year anniversary. We're going to do some yeah. fun stuff for that. And uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. And check out our Facebook page and be sure to like us. And we're picking up likes every now and then. And I'm like, wow. So like us. That's kind of like cool. Us. I Michael. like you. <laughs> <laughs> Just watch me like you. <laughs> is, there a, is there a blog or anything that, you, uh, that you're writing or where people can write to you or anything or uh, um through my website which is kind of in stasis stasis progress something's happening with it uh, it's not quite complete yet but uh yeah and, and that website is uh, uh michaelbeinhorn.com nice. <laughs> that would make sense yeah I know. And, and i couldn't even put it together <laughs> It's the simplest thing, myname.com. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> all right. Well, from it's all of us here. I need the warm milk. <laughs> from all of us here I'm at the Audio Nowcast, um, thanks for listening. Uh, see? I messed up the beginning. It's contagious, the right? <laughs> from all of us here at the Audio Nowcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and West Wave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and uses Aphex's 230 Master Channel Voice Processor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>